Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you um, as a people always in need, and yet you are a God always eager to give. And so as we submit ourselves to your text, we ask that uh, as we see in this that we are those who believe and are saved. There's no greater aspiration for anyone to ever sit under your word than to believe and to be saved, to bear fruit with patience. So we ask for all of this in your name. Amen. Um, So I had... uh, a difficulty this week writing my introduction to the sermon. Normally, what I like to do in my introduction for a sermon is to think about uh, why we need this text, how it speaks to our cultural moment, why you should pay attention to it. Uh, but this week's was particularly difficult because Jesus preaches this text. And I can't possibly give you any reason to listen more than Jesus is going to preach this text to us. If you came here today and there is something of greater interest to you than Jesus preaching the Bible, then I can't help you. You're in the wrong place. Maybe go walk in the sun, climb a mountain. But for those who come to God's church wanting to hear God's word, Jesus is going to do that today. Anytime someone preaches here at our church, they spend hours that week looking at God's word, examining it, trying to, to, to find the meaning that the original author put in there and to say, this is what God is not only saying, but what God is doing. And today, Jesus Christ, the second person of, of the Trinity in the flesh, is going to share with us a text, and then he's going to preach to us that very text. He's going to tell us what it means and how to apply it, which means I have the very difficult job, if you know me, of just not screwing up, of letting God's word preach itself. And yet it's actually in the simplicity of today's text. Jesus gives a parable, Jesus preaches a parable. That's it. But it's the simplicity of this pattern that reveals our need for it. Because none of you in here will have a problem understanding the text. But what the parable of the sower goes on to show is that the problem is not with our ears. The problem is with our hearts. And this is the big picture we're going to see today in this passage is this. It is that Jesus helps our hearts hear the word of God, hold the word of God, and bear fruit from the word of God. And if you haven't yet opened your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, we've been working through the gospel of Luke, and we're going to see this in two ways. First, in Jesus' giving of the parable, that is verses 8 or 4 through 10, we're going to see parables and privileges. That's where we see the joy of walking with Jesus. And then in verses 11 through 15, this is Jesus' preaching on his own parable. We're going to see dirt and diagnostics, and that's how Jesus teaches you, teaches us together to assess our own hearts. And so to begin, let's read the first portion of our text, Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 10. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, that is Jesus, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And he said to those things, 
he, or, and as he said these things, he called out in the world's greatest dad joke, speaking of ears of corn, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It wasn't actually a dad joke. Anyway, I laugh at it. Verse nine, when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they're in parables. So that seeing they may not see and hearing, they may not understand. So last week, if you were with us, Luke paused for a moment on the, uh, the select men and these uh, extraordinary women who were following Jesus and serving his ministry. And this week, Luke is adding to this context by showing us these swelling crowds that are gathering around Jesus. This isn't new in Luke, but what is new is Jesus has outgrown a, re- uh, a local attraction. He's regional now. It's not just the crowds coming from the town he's in. People are coming from towns all around, town after town, to see Jesus. In the midst of all these growing crowds, Jesus gives a parable. A parable, you're probably familiar with it, it's just a literary type. It's a not true story that reveals a true reality. The boy who cried wolf is a parable. It's fiction, yet it reveals a nonfiction truth. And Jesus has actually used a handful of parables so far in the book of Luke. We saw one about wine and wineskins. And Jesus is going to use increasingly more parables as the book goes forward. But at this moment, in verses 4 through 10, Luke is actually drawing us not towards so much the content of the parable, but your relationship towards Jesus' parables. Here, Jesus concludes simply by saying, let those who have ears to hear... Here, and this is our first point today, this is where we see the parables and the privileges of walking with Jesus. I am an absolutely terrible lip reader. It's a running joke between me and my wife. It just happened yesterday where she was trying to communicate with me. Typically, secrets we're trying to keep from our kids and conniving to stay on top of parenting. And she will overly exaggerate her mouth movements and move them so slowly that you could think the most simplest man would understand what she's saying. And I'm just like, I move my mouth back to her to, ch- to test her. Uh, and it's just, it, it's, a, it's a disaster. And we can discern that the disciples felt the same way about Jesus's parable and warning here. It's not they didn't see Jesus communicating. They understood clearly. Jesus slowed down. He's like, let me tell you a story as if to explain this to you like you were five. Let me make sure you understand the words coming from my mouth. But despite the clarity and simplicity of Jesus's words, the disciples don't know what Jesus is saying. They can't discern the meaning of it. And you may feel you know this parable, right? This is the parable of the sower. When you think of parables, we typically think of probably the parable of the good Samaritan or the parable of the sower. If you've been around in the church, this is like the the, the cream of the crop. You might think you know it, but let's bear in mind that Jesus' disciples, when Jesus gave the parable, wrestled with it. They didn't know what to do with this story. And so they come and they ask Jesus a question. And to answer their question, Jesus shares with them an Old Testament prophecy. We see this again in verses 9 through 10. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see 
and hearing they may not understand. Now, the full quote of this is quoted from the prophet Isaiah uh, comes on the heels of Isaiah having this zeal to be the Lord's messenger. And Luke only includes a little bit of what other gospel writers kind of quote at full, but this is the original context in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 8 through 9. Or excuse me, yeah, Isaiah 6, verses 8 through 9, where we read this. And I, that's the prophet Isaiah, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, that is you, Isaiah, go and say to Israel, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. So if you have your Bible open, you can glance up and take a look at what's happening in the previous verses of Isaiah chapter six. And what we see is immediately preceding this is Isaiah gets a guest pass into the very throne room of God. He sees the glory of the Lord. He sees these creatures beyond our description. And he is so incredibly awestruck by God's power that when God says, who will be my messenger, he finds himself already raising his hand. I will do it. I will go. When we see even the smallest glimpse of God in the fullness of his glory, we cannot help but be overwhelmed by a desire to declare and to let others know the goodness of this God. And so Isaiah Isaiah does this eagerly, zealously, and then God says this to Isaiah. He says, all right, Isaiah, but here's the deal. You're going to go to Israel, and you're going to call them back to repentance. But those same Israelites who you're speaking very clearly to are going to hear the words of your mouth. They're going to see the acts of your ministry. They're going to comprehend the message and the syllables that you speak, but they are not going to understand it. In hearing you, they will not hear. In seeing you, they will not see. And you see, the problem we all face is not a problem of God not speaking. God speaks very clearly. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 1. David says this in Psalm 19, that even the beautiful creation we live in does not cease but endlessly declares and proclaims the glory of God. We can see certain aspects of God's glory, certain aspects of God's character and attributes all around us. The problem is not that God is a poor communicator. The problem is that we are poor listeners. And this is not just a superficial problem. This is the problem of sin. Sin has plugged our ears. It has blinded our eyes. We can hear Jesus' words. We can read the Bible. But apart from God's divine assistance, we find ourselves constantly frustrated trying to read the lips of what would otherwise be exceedingly clear. But this is why what Jesus does here in Luke chapter 8 is simply astounding. And if we're going to understand this parable at all, we need to see what's remarkable about this. Because did you notice what Jesus said to his disciples in verse 10? He says, to you, it's been given to know the secrets of God. And here so far in the book of Luke, when Luke is talking about disciples, he's not exclusively talking about the 12. He's kind of talking about these broad people who are genuinely following Jesus, genuinely genuinely listening 
genuinely wanting to hear and do the word of God. And so here we see this, that Jesus is saying, you, you understand, you have ears to hear. But what's the problem we see in this text? It's that all of this is prompted by the disciples not knowing. They're coming to Jesus asking a question. They don't appear to be secret knowers. They appear to be unknowers. But all of this changes when Jesus says what are what I believe the five most important words in this entire text, the five words that open up verse 11, where he says this, now the parable is this. Why is this so astounding? If we want to understand this text at all, we must understand these five words. Because here is the new Isaiah. Here is the one who didn't get a guest pass to visit the throne room of God, but here is the one for who eternity past lived in the throne room of God and is himself the very glory of God. Here is the greater Isaiah who was sent on a greater mission, not simply to communicate the word of God, but to be the word of God. But despite all of those who wrestle to understand, here is the one who stops, who speaks to those who he loves and brings them understanding on what apart from his grace they would never understand. Here Jesus slows down as the greater prophet of God and says, I'm going to help you with this. I'm going to make sure you know this. This is the privilege of walking with Jesus. We cannot know the secrets of God apart from knowing Jesus. Jesus doesn't give his disciples some sort of holy packet of knowledge. What Jesus gives his disciples is holy himself. It is a relationship with him. We're about to look at a parable about the word of God and its reception, but let's not skip past the one here who goes to great lengths to stop, to consider, and to make sure that it doesn't stay in the ears, but it progresses to the heart. You see, the kingdom of God is a mystery. If you've been with us in the book of Luke, we've seen this mystery. It's a paradox. How is it that the least become the greatest? How is it that weakness is power? How is it that death is life? How is it that repentance is purity? How is it that holiness can meet with love? All of this is a mystery. In fact, the word translated in the ESV here in verse 10 as secret is literally in the Greek mysteria. It's a mystery. But with Jesus, the mystery is given to us. The mystery is revealed to us. When Paul defines his ministry in Colossians 1, he says that he has been given the task to declare the mystery of God. And then he goes on to say what the mystery is. God's terrible at keeping secrets. He tells it to us openly. And he says, what is this mystery? It is Christ in you. And then he goes on to say, what, for what does he preach all of this? Towards what end? That all might be mature in Christ. The mystery of God, the will of the Father, the power of the triune Godhead is that Christ would be in you. You see, when we try to make sense of the world, we try to make sense of our circumstances, we generally think of it in terms of knowledge and information. And that's helpful and that's good. There is knowledge and there's information in God's word. 
But the Bible presents as a chief source of orientation, a chief source of grounding and of knowledge, not a knowledge about God, but a knowledge of God. This is what we saw if you were with us last summer when we were working through the book of Proverbs. When God speaks of wisdom, when Solomon is trying to paint a picture of what it's like to know the things of God, he doesn't paint it as simply a packet of understanding or even primarily as a piece of food that we take and we consume and now we're satisfied. But do you remember the primary allegory that's used to describe wisdom? Wisdom is portrayed as a beautiful woman, as an intimate lover, as a deep friend. To know the secrets of the kingdom of God, to know the gospel of Jesus Christ is to not know a thing. It is to know a person. The person who comes to those who can't hear, the person who comes to those who are struggling to understand and says, let me tell it to you. Let me make sure you know it. And this is why right after Jesus says this warning, let those who have ears to hear, hear, that he continues to explain this, not with a parable about our ears. That's what we would expect, right? But he shares with us a parable about our hearts. The privilege of walking with Jesus is knowing the one who helps us, hears with our, who helps us hear with our ears that which must be known by our hearts. To walk with Jesus is the safest place to come in our ignorance. To walk with Jesus is the safest place to come with our questions. To walk with Jesus is the safest place to come with our fears and our concerns and our limitations because to walk with Jesus is to walk with Jesus. And that is the secret of God. That those who realize that he is what we could never be, they have the intimacy of walking with the one who helps us know all things by knowing himself. And this is where Jesus, who knows our hearts perfectly, now helps us know our hearts a bit more clearly. He begins to preach to us his own parable, and this is our second point this morning. This is dirt and diagnostics. The privilege of walking with Jesus is he teaches us, he loves us, he wants to help us, but what does he want to help us do? Diagnose and know our own hearts. And so here is Jesus' mystery-revealing explanation of this parable in verses 11 through 15. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So, You've probably heard this story as the parable of the sower, but upon reading it, it's not the parable of the sower. It's not even the parable of the seed. It's the parable of the soil. The sower and the seed matter, but what Jesus is directing us to is the heart of the recipient of the seed. That's what matters. That's what Jesus wants these people to take away. 
And to the modern reader, that is the Missoulian who faithfully goes to the farmer's market to feel nice and agrarian, we probably need some more help understanding this than what we can get downtown. Because in looking at this, it looks like the sower might be a really bad farmer. (laughs) He's throwing his seed everywhere. It's on paths, it's in good soil, it's on rocky soil. But this isn't the sign of an indiscriminate and foolish farmer. This was actually the practice of the day. What would happen during that time is you would sow first and plow afterwards. So a farmer would go out to a field and he would scatter his seed everywhere. And then they'd take the plow and they'd hook it to the ox and they would go and till it. And the tilling would bury the seed under it. But what would happen is if the plow discovered in its going that there was a game trail or a walking path that cut across the field, that ground wouldn't break up as nicely and it would stay hard packed. Or maybe beneath what looked to be good soil, once the till went by, you would see that it was bad soil. It was rocky soil. And this is a really important context for us when we understand what Luke shared with us in verse 4. And that is that Jesus is addressing crowds of people who at this time are completely untilled. What are the hearts of all these followers? We don't know. But by the end of Luke, we certainly know that not all of these people are true disciples of Jesus. We'll talk more about that even next week. Who is it that is part of Jesus's family? Of the many who followed Jesus, there were many, many hearts. And the quality of those hearts, the utility of the ears which heard, would be revealed over time as the message of the gospel interacted with the unique ecosystem of the heart of its hearer. And in one sense, this parable explains even our own experience in church. That is, in a size, or a room of this size, we are all hearing the same words. None of you is hearing another preacher at this moment. And yet there will be many varied responses to this. It's not because the power of the gospel is any more or any less. It's because each of us sit with a unique shape of our heart and an ecosystem. And Jesus wants you to soberly assess and to understand what your heart might be and how you might move forward. Though the word of God has been spread broadly wherever the gospel is preached, there are threats to that gospel wherever it is preached. If you've ever had an infant, remember the first time we had uh, our son, the world seemed pretty safe. We were big, strong grown-ups. And then you have a baby and you realize everything in this world wants to kill it. It's a dangerous place. And that's the clearest reality of this world. We often think this world is like heaven, But everything in this world is dangerous. That's why we need the gospel. That's why Christ came and died on a cross. Not because we are doing all right, but because we were in danger. There are threats everywhere to God's word. The New Testament writers generally speak about these threats in three ways. They speak of the world, the flesh, and the devil. That is, our external circumstances in the world. That is, when it becomes 102 degrees and you are hot and frustrated with your family. That then becomes the internal part of the flesh where we have internal desires and sins which are contrary to God. But then lastly, there is the devil, the one who wages war against our soul. And Jesus' parable here highlights all three of those, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he begins with the first soil. That is the one in danger of the devil. And this is the soil of unbelief. Jesus speaks of this soil as hard, but also as afflicted. 
And this is important. It is hardened by its own sin, but it is also the one who has things stolen away from it by the devil. If you ever hiked in Montana, you know that if you are to see a cute little baby bear, that that's not where our logic ends, right? (laughs) Because wherever we encounter a cub, we know and begin to look for what? For mom. As Christians, we ought to know that wherever the gospel is preached, the devil lurks nearby, wishing to rob and destroy what the Lord has sown. The devil knows he needs to not do anything except remove the gospel from you. Without the gospel, without the word of life, without the message that Jesus Christ did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God, we have no hope. He wants to snatch away your attention and so, be, so that we do not have the power of the seed and the nearness of our message to us. That message, as simple as it seems, the good news, we summarize it here, the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God is the very power of God. God cannot reveal his power in anything more than the message of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that? God could stop the sun in the sky. He could cause the earth to split into. And yet the most powerful display of God's glory is in the act and message that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. There is nothing more powerful than all of that and therefore there is nothing more dangerous to the devil than that message close to your heart. My guess here is that most of us, if you're here today, uh, didn't diagnose yourself in this category. In fact, if you claim to believe the gospel at all, this text isn't meant to produce in you paranoia, but it's actually meant to produce in you confidence too. The Holy Spirit inside of you would want to be assured that an outright rejection of the gospel does not typify your heart. In fact, one cannot be a Christian and simultaneously be one who does not have the gospel. Look at how Peter talks about the believer's relationship to the word of God in 1 Peter 1. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of the imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers The flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news. That is literally the gospel that was preached to you. To be a Christian is not to be a hardened unbeliever. Now we ought to, and we'll talk about this in the second story, we ought to be cautious of where as believers we let unbelief creep into our hearts. But for the time being, I want to make two points of application for us here in the first soil. And the first is this. We need to be aware and to be informed that the devil is not a myth or a figment of our imagination. He is real and he is really against you. Peter, later on, we just read Peter in 1 Peter 1 about the living and abiding word of God. The end of his chapter, he speaks, or book, he speaks and says, be sober-minded, be watchful. The enemy, your devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I don't know what you think about the devil, but I know the devil doesn't care as long as you don't think about the devil. The devil would like you to not think of him. He would like you to have wrong thoughts about him. He would like you 
to perhaps think that he is the only problem you have and you have no problem of sin in your own heart. Or perhaps he would like you to think that the devil is mystical and scary and seems like this spiritual battle that is too ethereal for us to understand in our modern mind. He doesn't care what you think as long as you don't think about him. But we must not be caught off guard. Secondly, and this is why we ought not be caught off guard, is notice in this text the competing desires of the Lord and of the devil. The sower would have you receive the seed, believe the seed, and be saved by the seed. But the devil snatches that seed for the specific purpose of what? So that you will not believe and be saved. The path to salvation is very clear. If you want to know what it takes to be saved, believe the gospel. That is it. That's the simplicity of it. But how desperate the work of the devil is to keep you from the power of the seed from cracking the surface of your heart. And so if you are here today, it just so happens that you are consciously this soil. That maybe you came here with your family. Maybe you wandered in wanting to know what it is you're against. I want to say two things to you. First, I'm glad you're here. I hope that you would introduce yourself to me, that we could talk more about the gospel. But second, what this soil reveals is that your rejection of the gospel is not a sign of your intellectual achievement or independent strength and autonomy. It is actually a sign of your affliction and your slavery, that you are not one who has intellect and has rejected. You are one who has not you are one where the very thing that saves you is robbed and taken from you. But there is hope even for you. Consider Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 through 6. He says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. So what is the good news for those who cannot see? For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He says earlier in 2 Corinthians 3, 16, he says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. If this is you, if the devil has snatched away what the Lord has sown, The solution is simple. Turn to Jesus. See the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you go look at fields, you'll see fake owls or scarecrows to scare away the birds that would snatch away what the farmer wishes to grow. But at the center of the field of his crop, the Lord has fixed a cross that all who look upon it might find the refuge and relief they need. Turn to him. There is no greater power than this. Secondly, we don't see the soil of unbelief, but we see specifically what I call the soil of unbelieving. I've kind of made up a word here because if we look at our text, it's not that these second hearts fail to believe. It's that they believe for a little bit and then they go on to disbelieve what they once confessed to be true. Read again with me verse 13. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root in themselves, or they have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, fall away. 
I have a planter in front of my house and I always throw in some wildflower seeds um, at the beginning of the year. And I didn't do that at all this year. But actually, the flowers that died last year (laughs) dropped seeds. And it grew this year before I could even reseed it. And after a really rainy spring and a first week of sun, these things grew like weeds. They grew furiously. They grew fast. And yet, the same sun which caused them to grow soon began to cause them to wilt. The same sun which brought them nourishment and life began to eventually destroy them. Why? Because they grew no roots. How many of us receive the good news of salvation by grace with exceeding joy? I would argue you cannot receive the good news of the gospel of grace without exceeding joy. The sun of mercy causes us to spring out of the ground, but what happens when we fail to allow the same sun which causes us to grow to also drive our roots deep? We wither. We die. How many times have I seen somebody who've come to the Lord in a zeal and a joy in hearing what Jesus has done for them while failing to believe the same gospel which saves them is the same gospel which sustains them. They want relief of salvation for all of life, but they don't want new life. They want freedom from guilt, but they don't want growth in holiness. They want eternal life, but they don't want Romans 6, that we too might walk in newness of life. A life of growing in the gospel is a life of living life in a hot and dangerous world. But do not disbelieve the power of this seed, that its roots will grow enough, will grow deep enough to sustain you in times of need. My prayer is that in here, perhaps we have more people (laughs) receiving the word with joy than those who not. I want that to be true of our church. But my hope is is that when happiness is partnered with heat, you do not fall away. That as soon as hardship comes into your life, you do not begin to doubt what you want to believe to be true and say, this is hard. I must find something else. The world says when things are difficult, you're doing something wrong. The gospel says, disbelieve the world. Believe that sometimes salvation looks like the only innocent person in the world being murdered on the cross as a criminal. But that hidden in the heat of the world is the grace of the light of God. Life will challenge your joy. Regardless of what you believe, where you live, or what you make. But life in the kingdom of God means that joy is always our punctuation mark at the end that to endure is to realize the promises of God are always yes in Jesus Christ, that though the sun is hot, though you think you might not go on, that this root will strike grace. Consider the words of the authors of Hebrew, author of Hebrews to any who might be afflicted by this present trial and notice what your Lord would have you see in Hebrews 3 verses 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The world calls us to unbelieve at every corner. 
but the root of the gospel will hold and nourish all who endure. The third soil is what I call the soil of broad belief. Read with me again, Luke 8, verse 14. And as for what fell among the thorns, there are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. So how is this different than the first one? Well, where the first one believes and then shrivels, this one believes the gospel and then believes everything else. It's not only the seed of, or the fruit of the seed of the gospel that grows, but everything seems to grow in this soil. Everything is readily accepted to grow alongside of it. There's no exclusivity. This is the person who cares about their acceptance to God. I mean, wouldn't we all? If there were a God, wouldn't we care what God thinks about us? And yet we also care for the acceptance and the anxieties of the world. We believe in the riches of the kingdom of God. No one comes to God hoping that there's not some sort of benefit to us here. But we also really like to enjoy, perhaps hedge, and maybe, maybe partake a lot of the riches of the world. We believe that God has pleasure at his right hand, our pleasures forevermore, the Old Testament tells us. But we also believe in the pleasures of life. But such a faith which refuses to prioritize above all things the kingdom of God is something that trying to get everything gets nothing. Your very hope is choked out. If we're honest, how many of us confess salvation in the gospel while actively seeking care, riches, and pleasure by the world's standards over and above the standards of the gospel? Now, I want to be clear here. God made the world and everything in it. And God looked at it and he said, what? It is good. There are things in this world that we ought to enjoy, but we ought to enjoy trust and hope in God exclusively. There's no rival to this joy. This is the joy. This is the fruit. I realize this with my children. Oftentimes they get um, frustrated over a broken toy and I begin to tell them, like, it's, it's, it's okay to be sad. Like, that's, that's all right. Things break. Things get lost. It's not that we shouldn't have emotions. But there are times where in their lack of maturity, this loss just causes them to spiral and lose all control, all sense of perspective. And what I say is I say, if, if this thing has this much control over your life, then it would do well for us to get rid of it, to not have it here, to not have to deal with any of this. And as I say that, I try as hard as I can to not think about those things in my own life, but they're there. And they're there in your life, aren't they? Things that we know compete for the light of the sun. Compete for the highest level in our life. Christians ought to enjoy the world, but we ought to enjoy God more. Every farm has weeds. You'll never go onto a farm that doesn't have weeds. But when people drive by your farm, what do they see? Do they see a sea of weeds? Or do they see slowly growing fruit, a field where there is something that's growing and that one thing is clear. Lastly, 
we get a glimpse into the final soil that is the soil of honest belief. Read with me Luke eight fifteen. As for that in good soil, they are those who hearing the word hold it fast with an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So here's the good soil, the soil which bears fruit. This is the beauty of parables. We might not know what the soil is, but we know this should be us. This is the good soil, the fruitful soil, the enduring soil, the soil which believes and is saved. This is the soil who, unlike the previous one that is too broad, is of an honest heart. This was a common phrase in the Greek world back then that didn't just communicate truthfulness. It communicated truthful conviction. It was to be honestly convicted, given towards, convinced of one thing. And this is the beauty of Jesus' parable. What was convinced at the end of all things was not the mind, though the mind would follow. What was convinced was the heart. You see, the gospel is intellectually consistent. I love the intellectual aspects of our faith. There is no greater worldview that I have found that makes sense of our experience. That's why brilliant scientists and philosophers throughout the ages have been believers because it makes us look out in the world and to say, there is meaning here. There is organization here. There is purpose here. How do I know that? Because God who is organized and purposed and good has created it. There is a beautiful place for Christian apologetics. There is stunning truth behind pictures telescopes are taking and putting on our Facebook stream. The gospel is not afraid of skeptics, but instead it calls out to be examined sincerely by them. But at the end of the day, it is not our minds which need convincing, but our hearts which need tilling. In one sense, there's a terrible reality in this text, and that is that we are dirt. But tilling comes. Here's the good news, kids, of Ezekiel 36, 26, where God says this, of our hearts which have no control. He says, I will give you, you hardened, rock-filled, weed-stricken soil, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. God gives us new hearts. He takes dead soil and he breaks it by the point of the cross. He takes rocks and he removes them. He discovers weeds and he destroys their roots. Jesus calls us to know our hearts. Why? Because the one who speaks the parable matters. The one who shows us what our hearts are like is the same one who fulfills Ezekiel 36 and gives us new hearts. So how do you know who you are in the parable? Well, Jesus, here, Today, you've heard it, has given you the seed. He has just preached to you the secret of the kingdom. Believe it and be saved by it. So what do we do? Though we are soil, Jesus makes us more than soil, doesn't he? Because at the end of the parable, Jesus gives the soil hands. You go out in your garden and you tell your dirt to do something. And you'll realize quite quickly that you are not Jesus. But Jesus tells the dirt in this passage to do something, doesn't he? He says, hold it fast. Two things. Hold fast to his word and bear fruit with patience. What do we do? We hold fast and we bear fruit. I remember on vacation once with, when my son was just around two years old and we were on a boat that took us to this small picturesque island. But there's a reef around it so we couldn't... Uh, land the boat at it. 
And then the lady told us that she had no life jackets. And all of us, I'm not the only guilty party here, all of us said, that's no problem. We'll just jump in and swim. And so I grabbed my son and I jumped into the waters. And those waves were far larger than they seemed on the deck of that boat. And that island was further away than I thought. And as I stood, stood, I didn't stand, as I floated in an ocean with waves crashing around with nothing to save my son except for his dad, there was one thing I knew. Don't let go. It didn't matter how hard the waves crashed, I would hold on to my son. Even if I was thrown under for a moment, I wouldn't have the reaction of letting go. I would cling to him. No one would pry him from my arms. To hold fast to the gospel with an honest heart is to hold fast like that. To hold fast for your life. But in this parable, we do not hold fast to a toddler we hold fast to the power of God, which is able to save. The power of God proven not only on a cross where our sin was paid for, but in an empty tomb where life was given to us. The devil is sure. The arms of Christ are more. The heat is real. The comfort of the cross endures. The weeds are quick. The grace of God forever Hold fast and don't let go. Notice the kindness of Jesus here in speaking into what can perhaps be frustration. He not only says hold fast, for many of us at times have tried to hold fast, and we say it's not working. Nothing's happening. It's not getting easier. I'm not getting better. But this is where Jesus says bear fruit with patience. Holding fast to the gospel produces fruit. It cannot not, for the seed is not an impotent seed. It bears fruit always, but we expect it with patience. You see, we need this because many of us are frustrated when our sin doesn't fall away the moment we're saved. We become disheartened when the first seeds of doubt begin to rear their minds again. We become anxious when long-standing sin issues don't immediately resolve within ourselves, when conflict arises in our own hearts and in our communities, but bear fruit patiently. Our world does not understand this. Do you realize when you buy things at Amazon, they're like, we'll pay you money to wait. It's like, here's $25 if you could wait till Wednesday. They're like, nope, got to have it now. We fail at waiting, but the secrets of the kingdom of God is that eternity is at stake. And we have nothing to lose. Bear fruit patiently. Hold to the seed and trust it. Know that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And there might be days of hot sun. There might be rocks which seem to strangle. But the root will go down and the fruit will come up. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let us not just understand with our mind, but hold fast with our hearts, bearing fruit in patience. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, till our hearts. We can do nothing apart from you, but here is the one who says, now the parable is this. Lord, we ask that the seed that has been sown even today will pierce the soil of hearts for the first time, will drive roots that are long entrenched even deeper, and will cause fruit to flourish so that all might see for the glory of God and the good of the church. We pray this in your name. Amen.